Man, good morning, Doxa Church. Happy Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, my name is Roger. I'm, I'm staff here at Doxa Church. And my role here is I'm helping lead the team uh, to starting a church plant in Osaka, Japan. And just kind of want to share some news with you guys. One thing we've been praying for for about a year now since we've said, man, we're, we're going to Osaka, Japan. That's kind of what the Lord's invited us into. Has been for Japan to open up. Um, they've been one of those countries that just like hasn't over the last two, almost two years now. And a, a few weeks ago, we just got the news that Japan is opening up and beginning to accept new visas. And so, yeah, you can definitely clap and like praise God for that. Because uh, we've been waiting like every day, just kind of like refreshing the news, just like hoping something would change. And then, yeah, a few weeks ago, it finally did. And we're just like thrilled and, and excited about that. And so what that kind of practically means is that now that they're open and beginning to process visas means that our visas, the ones that have kind of we've applied for, can begin to be processed and God, willing, like, God willingly speedily approved so that we can move over to Osaka, Japan. And so we've been praying and hoping that that would happen sometime in the start of 2022. And kind of with this going on, it, it feels like that is possible, uh, but it still is out of our hands, which like both really awesome thing is in God's hands, but also very like nerve wracking because it's completely out of our control. And so please continue to pray for that. Continue to pray that, yeah, God would have favor over our applications and whoever's in charge would just approve it. Pray that it would happen quickly um, and pray for us as we prepare. And if you want to know kind of like different, more ways that you can be involved with that, you can go to our website. So doxamadison.com. Under the church plants tabs, you'll see Osaka. And so what you can do on there is like, if you want to know how, can you, how you can be praying for us, just click sign up to pray on there. You'll receive kind of like a monthly update in ways that you can specifically be praying for us. If you want to know how to give towards that, if you want to be part of like what God is doing in Japan through your giving, you could also click that on there and we'll kind of reach out to you about that. And so, yeah, we're super grateful, really excited that that has come and just kind of wanted to share that good news with you all. Um, this morning... Um, really excited to continue in the book of Philippians. And so in a question that I kind of have for all of you this morning is, um, do you ever feel like disunity in relationships? Do you, do you ever feel like a lack of joy or like a struggle for gentleness with others? Do you ever uh, feel weighed down by anxiety? Do you ever feel like your mind is just like racing with thoughts and you can't control that? I know that's like the least like Christmas spirit way to start a sermon. You know, but Paul's actually going to like hit on these things. And so just stick with me because he's going to like talk about hope and how we can actually strive to have the positive way of those things. And so when, when you do feel those things, right, because my, my assumption is that most of us do. At one time or another, like we feel those things in our lives, like how do you try to change those dispositions in your life? I know for me, like a really common advice that I get is like, oh, you're not feeling joyful? Oh man, just like be joyful. Like just do it, you know? Like you're anxious? Oh, don't be anxious. Like you don't need to be anxious. I'm like, no, I do. This is the reason I feel anxious, right? And though that advice can be really like well-meaning, it typically doesn't work. And the reason it typically doesn't work because at the core of it, it's just essentially saying, hey, just like try harder to be something that you feel like you can't be. And that, and that doesn't solve the real problem. And so if, if you do now, or if you've ever felt the struggle to fight for unity, for joy, for gentleness, for peace, or for transformation in your life, man, I'm glad that you're here, because I know I feel that tension in my life. And today in Paul's letter, as it he, as he comes to a close, he's going to share his experience as he's struggled for these things, he's going to share about the things that he's been learning as he has struggled to fight to have those things. 
And the key word here is that he's like, he's learned these things, right? Like Paul wasn't just like born this way. There's not something extra special about him in that. He's learned how to strive for these things. And he's just been sharing a lot of these throughout the letter. And so as, it, as it's closing, he wants to kind of remind them that. He wants to make sure that they didn't miss some of the key things that he's experienced through these two years that he's been in prison in, Phil- in Rome. And that he, as he shares, his tone isn't like demanding or scolding. Like as you hear the words today, I don't want you to think he's saying, hey guys, like why can't you just be better? Like why can't you just be like me? That, that's not the tone and the way that Paul is sharing this, but rather he's sharing this as a patient and gracious friend, right? As someone who's gone through so much and he's saying, man, like, I love y'all. Hey, listen to these things that I've been learning. Like, I want you to have this. Like, here's what God's been teaching me. Here's how I've kind of learned to fight for joy. Here's how I've learned to be gentle with everyone. Here's how I've learned to not be anxious when, when anxiety feels like the most easy thing for me to do. And there's five things that we'll look at in this passage. And there, the first one is how to strive for unity, the second one will be how to strive for joy. The third one will be how to strive for gentleness. The fourth one will be how to strive for peace. And the fifth one will be how to strive for transformation in our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. And we'll begin at verse 2. And we'll go all the way to verse 9. And it says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. yes. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That is God's word. And so in verse 2 to 3, as he starts this letter, the first thing that he'll point out is, how do, how do we strive for unity? And it's interesting because he starts that by actually talking about a conflict that is going on. Right? There's two people in conflict in the church of Philippi, and her names are Iodia and Syntyche. And I want you to hear again, like, Paul isn't trying to shame or condemn them, but he's trying to show his love for them and his desire for reconciliation in their lives. See, his love for them is is pleading for them and is pleading for a third person to come in and say, hey, help these people find reconciliation in their lives. And we don't really get to know what what that conflict was that Yodia and Syntyche had, but what Paul does take the time to share is the type of women that they were. Right? He, he describes Yodia and Syntyche as women who have labored by his side, side by side with him in the gospel. So kind of like a translation for us today that would be like, hey, like these women are like rock stars. Like they've gone to battle with me. Like they have labored with me. 
all across, right, bringing the gospel to others. Like, these are not just some, like, random people in the church. He's saying these are some of the most important people in your church and in my life. And I, I don't want to see them, right, have this conflict, have this tension that they have right now in their life. And we may wonder, well, if Yodia and Sintiki are, are so godly and amazing, like, why are they in a conflict that hasn't been resolved? Like, those two things almost don't really seem to make sense or, like, match up, right? Like, if they're so great, like, shouldn't they just, like, have resolved this already by now? Like, how can two godly people not just work it out? And the not-so-simple answer is that, like, all of us, including Paul, including Yodia, including Syntyche, like, we're all in our journeys of sanctification. And sometimes conflict happens that isn't easily resolved. And I know it's not, like, a clear answer, but it's the truth, right? Like, this, this is showing us that. But it's also showing us that there's hope. Like, we don't give up when conflict happens. And Paul, I think, especially has compassion and hope for their specific unresolved conflict because he's actually been there himself. Like we read of a conflict in Paul's life with one of his closest friends and brothers in Christ in Barnabas, right? In Acts 15, we read that Paul and Barnabas have this sharp disagreement and they actually decide to part ways and no longer do ministry together after that. And if you look at their relationship at Paul and Barnabas, they had actually been working together for at least 15 years in their life. And it wasn't like they just like worked in the same office. Like the things that they did were amazing. Like they preached together. They planted churches together. They performed miracles together. They fought heresy together. They appointed elders together. I mean, they, they did some of the most incredible things in the beginning of the church together. And yet we hear, right, in Acts 15 that they come to this conflict that isn't able to be resolved, at least not at that moment. And have you ever thought about, like, why that is, like, included in the Bible? I know I do. Like, it's like, if that wasn't put on there, it's not like this big plot hole, like, wait, that doesn't make sense. It could have been, like, Barnabas had other arrangements, so he chose to go a different way. But it's, the Bible is clear. It's like, hey, they had this disagreement, and so they had to part and go different ways. And I believe it's included for all of us and for those first readers who received this letter because all people, even the godliest of people, are broken, and sometimes that our brokenness causes conflict with people that we love. And Paul and Barnabas, like, are not exempt to that. I think God wanted to show us that. And I think it wanted to show us that we don't have to fear conflict when it happens. Like, it, it's not a mark necessarily that everything is wrong. It could actually be a mark that you're part of actually a real relationship. Not a superficial one, but a real relationship. And that when it comes, we don't have to give up hope, but there's, that there's still a way for us to strive for unity. And even as you continue in the Bible, like, you'll see that we, we hope that, like, Paul and Barnabas were kind of able to, to resolve that as they seem to kind of work or have mutual people that they work together as time went on. And so in his advice to Yodi and Syntyche in, in their conflict, there's three principles that he, that he lays out here. And the first one he lays out for them, he says, agree in the Lord. And what he's saying to them, he's saying, he's saying, prepare your mind and your heart. See, you don't have to agree in everything, right? You don't have to have the same preferences for everything in your life. But he wants them to see, he wants us to see that when we have conflict, hey, you, there's, you have a greater commonality than your differences. 
He's saying both of you love Jesus. Both of you want the gospel to go out. Don't forget that. See that what you have in common is much greater than what you have in difference. Right? He wants to remind them to tell them, hey, like, you're on the same team. Like, as you're fighting, as you're fighting for these things, like, hey, remember, hey, you're on the same team. Try to remember that as you prepare to have this conflict. The second principle he shares to them is, he says, you know, come together, like discuss the conflict. He doesn't encourage them just like part ways or, hey, go to different churches or figure out a different way to do this. His encouragement is this, come together and have this, conflict, have this conversation together. The encouragement when we, ha- when we have conflict, right, it's not just to push it away, not just believe assumptions or even our own stories, but it's to come together and have the conversation about what's going on, not just ignore and to share those things, right, with kindness and not looking to get even. He's really alluding back to, if you, if you, if you look back, maybe it was like a month ago now when we went over Philippians 2, that mind of Christ, right? And, and in that point, he says, have the mind that you have in Christ. And, and how did Christ live out his life? It was, it was, this, it was this, this aspect of humility, right? Laying down the things that, that he deserved. If anyone deserved it, it was Jesus. He says, lay those down, and he's, he's entreating Yodi and Sintik, he's entreating us, like when we have conflict, not to come into it just looking to win, but come into it looking to lay down what we want, what we feel that we need in the goal of reconciliation. The, per, the third principle he lays out is, he says, seek support, right? He, he, we, we don't know the, really know the name of, of this third person, but he tells someone, hey, like, help these women, help these two people that I love, Help them have reconciliation. Like, I wouldn't want anything more than t- to see them be back together and working well together again. Because sometimes conflict is really hard to just resolve with the two people involved, right? Have you ever been in that place? Like, sometimes it's actually really helpful and important to bring a third party into it that just has, like, a completely different view than we might have. And that's what this third person's called to do. Not, not to take sides, but the third person is brought in to kind of help mediate and help the situation Sometimes for us, right, in our conflict, that might be something we have to do. We have to, like, bring in someone, not like your best friend, so you know he, like, has your side, but bring someone that actually, like, their goal should be your goal of having reconciliation, not for us to win. The second thing that Paul shares in verse 4 is to strive for joy, right? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And I just want to call to mind, like, the person that is sharing this is in prison. That's, like, really hard for us to grasp. It's really hard for me to grasp. Like, and he's, he's not just, like, writing this for someone else. This is, again, something that he's been learning and experiencing is that you can rejoice in the Lord always, regardless of where you're at. Whether you would be in an awesome Airbnb lakeside or whether you are in prison, he's saying you can rejoice, and I think it's really hard for us to, to connect and believe because for most of us, joy comes when we get what we desire, right? Like it's, it's very strongly based upon our circumstances. Like if things are good, then we're good and we feel like we're filled with joy. And, and if things are bad, then we're bad and we can't be filled with joy. Like those two things can't connect. But real joy, the one that Paul is experiencing in jail it's not solely based on circumstances. Like if it was, it, he couldn't say that. He couldn't have that. But real deep, lasting joy can be experienced when we realize what we deserve 
and yet see what we have received instead. Right? Here's what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that there's actually only one thing that we deserve. If we, if we talk about what we deserve. The Bible tells us there's actually only one thing that we deserve. And do you know what that is? In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Right? So wages are things that we earn for the things that we do. So the Bible says, actually, what, what we've earned for what we do for our lives, the way we don't make God king in our lives, the way we choose to live out, the way we want to live out, or that we've chosen to ignore and not worship God as God, the Bible says what we deserve for the things that we do is actually death, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. That if God were to simply give us what we deserve, that that's what we would get. Yet God, being rich in kindness and love, has given us what instead? Life. Right? Like, he didn't give us what we deserved. He actually, graciously, has offered us life. Physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual with him. That we have been given a gift of life with Christ. And I just think, like, what if we actually believe that? That the only thing that we deserve is death, and yet that we've been gifted life with him. I think we would experience some of the joy that we read in the Bible that is really hard to connect and understand. Right? You, you see how Paul's life was radically transformed. And it didn't change when he was trying to follow God in his own terms. His life radically changed the moment he met Christ, the moment he was faced by the gospel, the moment he, he was faced with the reality of, God, I've been hating you my whole life, and yet you love me? That's why he's shipwrecked. He, he, I mean, he has an awful life. Like, if you look at Paul's life, like, no one would be like, yeah, I want to sign up to, to, to go through all of that. Yet, this is the person who's saying, rejoice, always. And the key of that, the key to that type of joy is remembering Man, we deserve nothing but death, yet God has given us life, right? Romans says that if God gave us his son, how much more will he not give us everything that we need, right? That we can look back in the hardest of our times, the moments it's the hardest to believe that we can rejoice, that we could actually look back and say, God has already given me the greatest thing he could ever give me. If, if there's anything I lack, if there's anything trying to rip my joy away, I've got to believe that God is still working for his glory and my good. And sometimes this joy isn't just like smiles and like fluffy, but sometimes this, this type of joy is filled with tears. And again, it's one of those things like that kind of feels like it doesn't make sense, right? But sometimes we can experience joy in God while we're hurting, while there's tears coming down our faces because we believe that God is for us, that he's not against us. The third thing that Paul calls us to strive for is gentleness, right? And in ESV, he uses the word reasonableness. Other translations might say gentleness. They might say kindness. But the Greek word here, epiikes, is used to describe an attitude of gentleness where the normal and expected response would be retaliation. And Jesus often talked about this. Right? He's like, no, we're not doing the whole eye for an eye thing. He says, actually, when you're expected to respond with violence, I want you to respond with gentleness. 
He says, if you're just nice to those who are nice to you, you know there's nothing special about that. You know that, that doesn't show anything about who you are and who you believe in. But he says, when you can let your reasonableness, when you can let your gentleness, he says, be known to everyone, that will be a light to all people. And I think this is one of the hardest, one of the hardest places to do this for most of us would be when we want to take a stand for what we believe or for our convictions, right? And like, that's a good thing that we want to do that. Like, if we, there's things we strongly believe in, there's things that we're passionate about, like, we want to take a stand for those things. But I think it's really important to remember that taking a stand for our beliefs and convictions and being gentle are not mutually exclusive. Like, we can do both. We could actually stand up for what we believe, and we could let our reasonableness be known to everyone, right? Jesus, again, just a walking example on that. Like, he didn't walk around shaming. He didn't walk around, like, yelling at people. He stood up for his beliefs in gentleness. And you know what that did for people when he shared his beliefs, his convictions with gentleness? Man, it, it melted people's hard hearts, right? Instead of trying to beat a metal into shape, you can't do that. But if you put it in the fire of love, it begins to change it. That was Jesus' secret in gentleness. That's why gentleness mattered when speaking of the truths of God. And I think for us, that can just feel so hard. That I think we, we tend to like gentleness towards all people because it feels that like wrong is going to win if we don't take our stand in the way that we believe we have to. Or if we don't speak in a really harsh tone or in a sharp way, we feel like, no, that's just not right. Like, wrong is going to win, or they're going to get away with it, right? Whether it's with, a, with our spouse, with our family, with our kids, with our neighbors, like, we feel like, no, like, it, I, we have to win this. I, I can't just, like, take a step back. And I think we miss what Paul is saying here, that the way we can be gentle to everyone, the way we can show our reasonableness to everyone is we believe the end of verse five that says, the Lord is at hand. And what that's saying is, Jesus is near. Like, he's not distant and disinterested. Like, he will make it right. Like, we, we do have, we have a, I think we have a right passion in those moments. We're like, no, like, I want to make things right. And that's great. Hear me out. That's great. We should. Let's follow that. But at times we feel like, oh, gentleness is not going to get it done. No, no, no. I, that's, that's not going to work. But if we believe that Jesus is here, that he's near, that in those moments of, of conflict, in those moments of standing up for we believe that the Lord is at hand, that he will make it right, I believe we could respond in gentleness when retaliation is expected because we know Jesus is gonna make it right. Like he, he's here, he's in this. Hey, he can change their hearts. He can help them see this in a way that I, I can't right now. But I'm doing what he's called me to do, to be faithful to share, and to be gentle. The fourth thing that, that Paul calls us to do is to strive for peace. Right? And he begins by saying, do not be anxious about anything, in verse 6. I can't, think of many, I can't think of many things that would be more powerful in our lives than if we were able to do this, to not be anxious. Like if, if we could snap our fingers and, and rid ourselves of one thing, I think a lot of people would be like, yeah, anxiousness. I wish I could just get rid of that in my life. 
Because anxiety can be so painful and debilitating and wearisome, right? Like the word itself, it literally means to be like pulled apart in pieces, to be pulled in opposite ways. And like that's what it can feel like, right? One time I took, I used to like taking some hiking trips with my friends when I was in college. And one time I took this trip and we were in Arkansas and we were just like hiking. And I remember one of these hikes, um, as kind of we were going up, I'm like, man, I'm like really tired. I'm like kind of like dragging the team behind. They're like kind of waiting for me. And I'm like, not being prideful, but I'm like, I feel like I'm in better shape with these guys. I don't know how they're just like getting me. They're just like waiting for me. Like, hey man, you want to take another break? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I got this. You know, and then like we finally get to the top and I'm just like wiped out. And I'm like, y'all, like I'm, I was struggling. Like, I don't know what's going on. And they're like, yeah, like, man, we're so proud of you. Like, you did so much better than us. And I was like, no, I didn't. Like, you guys, like, had to wait for me. I had to, like, take more breaks than y'all. They're like, yeah, but you were, like, carrying rocks in your backpack. I was like, it's like a metaphor for something. (laughs) They're like, no, like, you were. And I was like, what do you mean? And I opened my backpack, and there's literal rocks inside of my backpack. And so every time we took a break, these guys decided to, like, add a rock to my backpack. (laughs) But it was so subtle that like one rock each kind of break, like I guess I didn't feel it or I was so, I felt my legs so much more than anything else. Then when I got to the top, I kid you not, like at least a quarter or half of my backpack was just like rocks, right? And I was like, wow, like that's not a great joke, right? (laughs) Like they should have stopped it like after the second rock and it's like, hey, joke, we got rocks on you. This one, this is like a three hour hike. It it was awful. So there's, there's like two things I learned from this trip. So one was, I, have, I really need better friends in my life. That's like, that's like a huge takeaway that I've like carried on to this day, like need to find better friends. But the second one was like, as I was like preparing a sermon, I like for some reason thought of that story and I was like, man, like that's what anxiety feels like in life, right? Like life is hard as it is. Like life is a hike. Like it's tough. It, it is. And walking around life with anxiety It's like taking that hike with a backpack full of rocks. It makes it so much harder, and it just feels sometimes impossible, like we just want to stop. But we don't have to live that way. Like, it still is going to be hard. Don't get me wrong. Like, even if you removed anxiety, it's still going to be hard because Jesus is still redeeming us in this broken world. But what Paul is encouraging us here is, you actually don't have to live with those rocks in your pack. And he's echoing Jesus' words almost verbatim in Matthew 6. Right? And so let's read those. In, um, you go to Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. And Jesus had just finished talking about this idea of, of treasure and having and letting go of your possessions and money, like not light subjects. Like if anything makes you anxious, right? Like money is probably at the top of that list. And after Jesus ends finishes talking about these things, here's what he says next in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, Seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day in its own troubles. Jesus wasn't scolding his followers, right? He wasn't, again, he wasn't saying like, oh, you need to just get it together. Like, just stop being anxious. Just try harder, that's not how he encourages them to not be anxious. Instead, he gives them reasons why they ought not to be anxious. That when anxiety comes, he says, hey, remember these things. When you feel anxiety, you want to take over your heart and your mind. He says, remember these things, right? He says, look at the birds. He says, look at the flowers, right? You could just imagine them in this like valley and just like looking around. He says, you see how they're eating? You see how these flowers are like alive? He says, God does that. Like, God provides them food. Like, the birds aren't anxious and worried. They're not, like, crunching up numbers how they're going to provide their seed. He says, God, literally, he, your father feeds them. That's not, like, a natural thing. He purposely works to feed them. So if you need food, can you imagine how much more thought and, and love and desire and time God will take to feed you? And if you need clothes, look how beautiful those flowers are, he says. God does that for them. He says, so, so, so when you need clothing, when you're worried about providing your tangible needs, can you imagine how much more God wants to give you? How much more time and beauty he will invest in taking care of you? He also says, worrying is pointless, right? He says, what happens when you, what adds to your life when you worry? He says, nothing. He says, you gain nothing by worrying, he also says worrying is for those who don't know God. But he says you have God as Father. Those who don't know God, worrying is the most natural thing that they can do. That actually makes total sense, he says. But if God is your Father, if the creator and the ruler of the entire universe who has never sinned, which means he can never sin or do wrong against you, if that is your Father, what do you have to worry about? He says he'll give you anything that you need. He will provide anything that you need, right? Earlier, Jesus would say, if, if earthly parents know how to give good gifts, although they're imperfect, right? And all the parents were like, yeah, amen, I feel that way. He says, if your, your heavenly father is actually perfect, how much more will he give you great gifts? He's calling them to mind. You don't have to worry because you have God as father who desires to provide everything that you need. Because this God knows what you need. Before the Lord's Prayer, before Jesus you know, teaches this prayer to his disciples, the verse before that he says that God knows what you need before you ask him. I hope you can find comfort in that. In the moment of anxiety, before you would even open your mouth and, and share what you're anxious about and share what you need, God's like, I know. I know what you need. 
One of my favorite things in, in the Gospels about Jesus was that when, when people would come and bring these desperate needs and requests to him, most of the times he would bless them before they even asked. Because he knew. He knew what they needed, and he rejoiced seeing them come to him. But what if, right, even if we theoretically, like meaning like, what if we believe that in here in our minds, right? We're like, yeah, checks out. I know that's true. I've read that. I've heard that. But sometimes that's like really hard to work into our hearts, right? To like actually believe in, in our inner being that that is true, that God is for me, that he'll provide all that I need. Like sometimes it's really hard to work, at, work that into our hearts. What do we do then? What do we do when we struggle to believe that? I think Paul gives us a really helpful tool to fight that anxiousness, right? He says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It, and see the, the flow of that, right? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requesting. And it's what I like to call PSTR. There's like no catchy way to like align those up. But that's what stood out to me, right? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requesting. So prayer, at its core, Paul says, when, when anxiety comes, he says, pray. Prayer at its core is us coming and just talking to God. Like, we don't shy away from it. We don't just try to figure it out on our own. He says, just come to him. Just talk to him. And then he says, supplication. And what supplication is, is just bringing our concerns when we feel our lack. When we feel like we don't have the supply to do something. He says, just share that. Say, God, I, I lack here. I need you to supply my lack here. And then he says thanksgiving, right? And you begin thanksgiving by looking back and seeing what he has already done, seeing, God, I know you've always provided. I, I, I feel anxious right now, I'm worried, but I see that you've always done that, and I thank you for that. And we look ahead, and we also thank him and say, like, I don't know how you're gonna do this, but I thank you that you hear me, and you'll provide what I need. And it, that helps us release, because God might not answer it the way we want or the way we feel like we need, but God answers, answers our prayers the way he would. If, if we knew what we needed, what we actually needed, that's how God answers our prayers. And then he says requesting, right? And so requesting is being very clear, not being afraid about what we specifically need. We request that. And what's amazing is that God wants to know what we want, what we desire, what we feel that we need. Like he's not inconvenienced by that. Like, isn't it wild? Like, the creator of the whole universe who lacks and needs nothing is not inconvenienced or bothered by our requests, but he's honored by them? Like, he feels worshiped and loved when we come to him? When we don't ignore him, but when we come to him, that honors him? That's amazing. That's, that's the God who wants to be your father if he's not today. That's the God who is your father if he is today, who is honored by your requests. Because God isn't weighed down. Like there's not too much or there's not something too big or there's not something too insignificant that he doesn't want to hear, right? The problem in our request to God is not that they're too infrequent or too big or too insignificant. The problem in our request to God is that we don't come to him because Jesus tells us to pray more. He's not saying, hey, like here's kind of your quota on prayers to God. He's saying, no, pray more. He tells all these parables. He's like, hey, this is widow that never stopped praying, like she was annoying, she never stopped praying. He says, be like that, never stop praying. Keep coming to God. 
right? He also tells the disciple, anything is possible with God. There's literally nothing you could bring to God that would be too big in prayer. He says, bring him anything. Nothing is too big for him. And sometimes we might feel like, this is so small. Like, why would I pray this to God? Like, he's got so much better things. Like, he's not ever overcapacitated. Capa- I don't know his word. He, he he's never runs out of capacity. There's nothing too small. Like, he cares. He wants to hear that. That's why Jesus says, look at the birds. If God cares about them, what is too small that you would have? A person he created, who he formed in his image. What would be too small that you would bring to him? Nothing. Nothing. The last thing Paul shares is, how do we strive to be people who are transformed? Not who just like do the act, not who just like follow these, the list of things, but who are like inwardly transformed. And he talks about this in verse 8 and 9. And in it, he's saying that we're transformed by what fills our minds and thoughts. The things that fill our mind and thoughts are the things that transform the type of people that we are. That we are. Because all thoughts are not inconsequential or innocent, right? Thoughts plant seeds that form into beliefs that form into actions. Like there's a reason why companies invest millions of dollars in commercials, right? There's a reason why like I watch a commercial on like a hoodie and like two weeks later I'm like, man, I have just this desire to buy a hoodie. Like I need it. I don't know why, but I like feel like I need to buy a hoodie. Like it works. It just does, right? They know that. And because of that truth, Paul calls us to dwell on these things, right? Not, not just to think once, but to focus our thoughts on the right things. And look at this list, right? On things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Now take the opposite of these. Untrue, dishonorable, unjust, ugly, disgraceful, awful, Worthy of dishonor, right? That's another, another word to kind of summarize those like negatives or opposite would be what we probably call like social media or the news or like the internet today. That could be like a really simple description of that. And I think we believe that like the things that we read or hear or like spend our time on, like uh, it's just like a way that we pass our time. Like it, it, again, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. I don't actually believe those things. It's just things that I read, the things that I listen to. But we're becoming discipled by the things that we take in. Whether we, whether we know it or not, it's happening. We're becoming discipled by the things that we take in. And I'm not saying that the Bible is saying you need to like abstain from the world and not listen or hear or read or watch anything from the world. That's not what I'm saying. That's not Jesus' call. Jesus says, Jesus prayed to God, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, right? But keep them in them, but sanctify them in the world. Renew them, make them different while they're in the world. But the question is, to ask ourselves is, what am I being discipled by? Again, it's happening, it's happening whether you admit it, whether you know it or not, it's happening. So like, what are we being discipled by? Are we being discipled by Jesus and his word? Or are we being discipled by other things? Man, like a really encouraging application thing that I'm trying to do myself this week is, I want to take time to just see how much like God content is coming into my life and how much, like, other content is coming into my life. Whether it's, like, the things that I watch, the things that I read, the music that I hear, the podcast that I hear. Like, I want to see, man, where am I in feeling, what is discipling me? What are the things that are filling up my mind and my thoughts and my heart? Because to strive for transformation is not simply by, like, avoiding bad things. That's not how we become holy people. 
That's not how we become godly people. We're not transformed by just avoiding, but we're transformed by pursuing the right things. That's why this list is put in the positive by Paul, right? He says, dwell and do. He says, actually do these things. Like, you've seen me talk about this. You've seen me, you've seen me write about these things, and you've seen me do these things. He says, now do that. Do these things, things that are honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Take an active pursuit more than like a simple avoidance, right? Go on the offensive. Don't just sit back and try to like block out things in your life. Do that too if you need to. But what are you replacing it with? You will be transformed by the things that you pursue. And so to close, if you don't know Jesus, if God isn't your father, I'm not saying whether you've, the question isn't whether you've been to church, that doesn't matter. Is God your father? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Because if you don't, disunity, sadness, anxiety, unkindness, and brokenness, that's the most natural way to experience life. That, that actually would make total sense without Jesus, without God. But if you do know Jesus, if God is your father, unity, joy, peace, gentleness, and transformation, that's the most natural way to experience life. And the beautiful thing is that the greatest gift isn't actually those things, but it's actually knowing God himself. Having someone who know, knows you and loves you, who knows all your good, but who knows all your bad and says, I love you. I want you. I gave my life for you. I just pray that you wouldn't leave here today if you don't know God as Father without knowing God as Father. And if you do know him, I hope you can experience God as Father in a new way because we tend to forget. I know I do. But I pray that you heard Jesus' words and say, you don't have to be anxious. You don't have to fear because God is your Father. Let's pray. God, thank you for becoming Father to us. Thank you for offering yourself to do that because we were hopeless. God, we were broken beyond repair in our own works. There was nothing we could do. And so you came. God, you came. And Jesus, you lived the perfect life that we could never live. You obeyed God the way we can never obey God. And you died the death that we deserved. We deserve death for what we've done, but you said, I will do that. I will pay for that. And you resurrected to claim victory over sin and death, the two things that we could never defeat. Lord, thank you for loving us with an unbreakable, immovable, perfect love. Help anybody in here, God, who doesn't know that, help them know that today, that you offer yourself as Father to them, that you know them, and then you desire a relationship with them, and that you love them. In Jesus' name.